0: This is Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. Now the chilly weather is settling in here in Wisconsin. It's a perfect time to warm up with our tried and true soup recipes. Whether you're in the mood for a classic chicken noodle, a creamy seafood chowder, maybe a hearty mulligatawny, when it comes to soup, there's something for every occasion and pretty much everybody. Our next guest loves soup so much he founded a soup company here in Wisconsin. He's with us on Food Friday to share the secret to making a great pot of good soup. You could join in at 800-642-1234. What is your go-to soup maybe this time of year? Is there a family recipe you swear by? Do you have a secret ingredient or technique to make your soup extra tasty? Or are you like I once was and you make boring, bland soups and you need some advice to make it better? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Stephen Wenhart is the founder and CEO of Wisconsin Soup Company. Steve, thanks a lot for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me, Rob. I understand some people actually call you Soup. Can you uh, talk about your
1: love, maybe your level of fanaticism towards Soup? Sure, sure. You know, um, some of my friends, I'm not even sure if they know my real name. They just call me Soup. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that started a long time ago. I've you know, had this company for about 13 years, so um you know people just kind of forget your real name call you soup um and you know it started actually um, from a small little town up in Dora County Fish Creek is where I'm from Mm -hmm. and um fell in love with soup up there they made everything from scratch it was really really you know cool to see people light up with it so I kind of just fell in love with it myself and um you know it's kind of artistic it's it's got a lot of different flavors and profiles and you know and it, it never changes. You know, you can change it up. You can mm-hmm. make it fun, make it interesting. And, um, you know, it, it it just set me down a path, right? And, uh, you know, I was, I was really happy to make a career out of it.
0: Now, the challenge, it seems like, to me, to making the same kind of super again and again, I'm a... I wing it. Uh, it's based on what's in my fridge, what's going bad or whatever. I, I never make the same pot of soup twice, pretty much. How hard is it to standardize, to settle in on, like, this is the way I'm making my chicken noodle? So that's So you know what you're getting when you get my chicken noodle.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's great. Uh, you know, that reminds me of my mother. You know, she would just take the, the celery that's going bad and uh-huh. make something out of it. Um, you know, that, that process can be kind of daunting um, to make something standardized and say, this is, this is what we're going to be having now for holidays, Thanksgiving or whatever, whatever special treats you want to have when you make soup. So, you know, some of the techniques I use are um, using fresh ingredients um, and definitely weighing out all the ingredients. So like mm-hmm. I've got a scale and I have a book. This is the secret right here. You've got a book and you write down your weights and you are patient. You take your time and you just kind of keep working on that recipe until it gets to be just just where you want it to be.
0: I got to know, do you you make a lot of soup at work? Do. do you ever just make soup for yourself at home? And All when you the do time. that, do you just
1: wing it? <laughs> All the time, and yes, there's a lot of creativity <laughs> that goes into that. So it's yeah, it's, it's kind of what you, you know, you know, it's an art too, right? Food's an art, culinary arts, right? So you get inspired, right? And it might be a dish you had at a, at a restaurant, or you might have saw something, you know, on TV or streaming, and uh, you get excited. You're like, oh, I could see this turning into a soup, right? And so I got, we're working on some recipes right now that are really exciting, like um, like a buffalo chicken bisque, you know, mm. which is just it's it's so fun to work on it, um, and you know, also kind of intimidating too, because you're 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 kind of creating it from nothing, right? So you just kind of have to go down a road, and you just keep working on it. So.
0: Now, I mentioned I once made really boring soup, you know, and I'd like make serve it up to my wife or whoever. And a lot of time spent putting extra salt in it and stuff like that. And the thing that really I was doing wrong, and this isn't rocket science, I didn't I didn't really do a broth or a stock or whatever. Can you talk about how important that is as a starting point <laughs> to have good flavored liquid?
1: Well, I, you know, I think that's I think that's the most important thing. And I, and I, and I say that because um, there you can your, your whole palate's going to uh, change as soon as you have a really great broth. Uh, does it take time yeah it does and it it takes um you know uh, slow and low uh you know what we do at wisconsin soup company is literally like our motto is literally um you know slow pace you know slow simmered soups for fast-paced lives right so like we're we're doing it low and slow and we're Mm -hmm. creating all that that really great flavor right um, so, yeah, even in vegetable soups, you can still get a great, great solid flavor um, if you mix the right combination so your, your palate goes wild, right?
0: Yeah. Now, I, I cheat usually when I make soup and use uh, a, a bullion paste. There's mm-hmm. stocks and things like that. Mm-hmm. I have made stocks, some better, some worse. What is the key uh, for making that low and slow? What are the key elements of making our own good stock?
1: Yeah. Um, well, you know, if, if we're talking like a vegetarian dish, right, like a vegetarian soup, I think it's really important to, you know uh, to explore or at least try the Trinity right you're gonna have your onion your garlic your, your carrot right um, and celery right you're gonna mm-hmm. have, you're gonna have all these different flavors. Um, I think that's really important to start there um, It's a good starting spot but then don't be afraid like if you have leftover leeks or, or parsley or you know get some rosemary from the garden right like start throwing some of those in there mm-hmm. and see like how that you know changes the complexity of the broth right? um, I've gone down this road and I have not even completed it yet. I mean, it's, it's kind of never ending, but it's, it's something where you can take a little bit of something that's part of your day and throw it in there and see how it turns out. And it's, and it's, it's really kind of remarkable what will happen on your palate.
0: And for non-vegetarian, uh, when I have, you know, rotisserie chicken or a cooked whole chicken, I will throw that, uh, the carcass in and spices and things like that. And yeah, like you say, low and slow, Mm -hmm. uh, like how how low should we go
1: on this (laughs) yeah uh just just about to uh, a little bit of a simmer a couple bubbles um but now it's the time piece right um you know crock pots work great because if you if you have the time and you have 24 hours to spare it's wonderful to just let that go low and slow it'll take all the nutrients from the bones and it'll pull it out um a couple little tips there, you know, apple cider vinegar. Throw that in there. Um, I I prefer distilled water because again, it will extract everything out of the bones. Um, and it's it's another one of those little tips that will you'll really make it really nutritious for you as well.
0: Uh, I've seen controversy. Do bay leaves actually add flavor to soup? <laughs> yeah. I use them. I, it may just be an act of faith. I don't know. It,
1: as far as flavor is concerned, I'm not a hundred percent on that one. I, I, <laughs> I I'm kind of I'm kind of with you on that. I, I will say though the aroma. Of a bay leaf mm-hmm. is incredible. And I think that's where the magic really is in a bay leaf. And that's why I choose to use it in, in when I'm making soups. So
0: it's Food Friday. We're talking to Steve Wenhart, founder and CEO of Wisconsin Soup Company. Surprise, we're talking about soup, uh, ways to make non boring soups of all varieties. You could join in at 800 642 1234 with your questions for Steve if you need some advice or your. Secrets, if you're willing to share them, 800 642 1234 is the number, or you could post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Mary joins us now in Eau Claire. Mary, hi. Hi. What did you want to tell us about, Mary?
2: I, well, um, my secret, like I love to make soup, and but sometimes it just needs a little something, and I don't know what it is. So I uh, will uh, put a few. Very generous uh, scoops of miso paste. And I use the the uh, white or pale paste, and it'll just give it a little more depth and flavor.
0: Mary, thanks a lot for that call. I've used this. I've had it at uh, miso soups at Japanese restaurants. Yep. It's fermented paste. Right. My curse is I'll buy some, use it a couple times. It migrates to the back of the fridge. I forget about <laughs> it. Uh, you, uh, miso uh, using yeah. in soup. We got some thoughts.
1: Yeah, you know, and, and I think what you're um, kind of rounding out there is the like the umami mm. flavor that you're trying to achieve. And you're right. Uh, thanks, Mary, for that, uh, Colin. Um, it does broaden out a soup. It does make it more rich and a little bit more like you want to have a little bit more of it. Another good couple of techniques there is uh, soy sauce you could also try. And mushrooms. Mushrooms are wonderful for that. Uh, you get that umami flavor. And, of course, we know that that also has that with meat as well.
0: Mary, thanks a lot for that call. Now, Mary used a magical phrase there in all cooking, I think, but especially soup for me. This needs something. How do, you, how do we evaluate a soup where to need something and figure out what that something is? Uh,
1: you know what you do is you, you get some really solid taste testers around you. <laughs> and uh, I'm never lacking for those in my life. Um, everyone kind of wants to be a taste tester. Uh, it's important to have feedback because everyone's palate is just slightly different. And I think you sort of kind of get to the answer you're looking for eventually. Um, but, you know, you just got to go down that road, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have to say, oh, I could use a little of this, a little of that. Uh, my mom was great at just throwing stuff together, but her problem was she never wrote anything down, so we could <laughs> never have it the same way again. So,
0: <laughs> my thing it always needs is, well, salt sometimes, and number two, acid uh vinegar lemon something like that uh mm-hmm. can you could you talk about acid as an element especially late in the game on, on a soup
1: yeah yeah I, uh, we we typically uh so we we do like a, a lemon um mm. or chicken orzo yeah and uh, that lemon flavor when it comes through on a chicken stock that's been you know simmering for you know 12 to 24 hours is just amazing right it just really comes out it's really loud um you know that that's a definitely a, a great thing especially kind of offsets um the salt, you don't need as much, right? Mm-hmm. So it brings it out, brings flavor out as well. So, yeah, it doesn't need much either. You do, you can be kind of subtle with it, right? You, don't, you just put a little bit in at the end there, and it'll open things up for you. For
0: Let's sure. go back to our callers. Mark is with us in Two Rivers. Mark, hi. Uh,
1: good afternoon. Uh,
0: there's a couple things my wife and I do when we make soup. Uh, one of the things is we can our own tomatoes, which uh, adds a lot of clean, fresh flavor.
2: We also make our own vegetable stock. And one of our secret go-to spices
0: is pesto. Uh, we will, right at the end, prior to serving the soup, we will whisk in a couple tablespoons of pesto right into the soup. And it really adds a lot of boost in flavor. Awesome, Mark. That is another something it needs at the end for me a lot of times. Something green is mm-hmm. in my head. And, and I think pesto or basil by itself could fit that category.
1: Absolutely. You know, uh we make a gorgonzola crab bisque. Um with that we put basil in there as well and you know, we we love that flavor. It just it's so good. You know, it's it's a very comforting uh, aroma.
0: Mark, thanks a lot for that call. Um something I wonder about making home uh soups is herbs, dry versus fresh and when to put them in. I know one thing I used to do wrong was like I got these fresh herbs one. I put in a little tiny sprinkle right at the beginning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, Mm -hmm. you might see the color by the end, but you're not tasting any of the flavor. Can you talk about how to use dry herbs, you know, the basils and oreganos versus fresh herbs?
1: Yeah. You know, it depends on where you want that flavor to be pronounced in Mm -hmm. the soup. If you want it to be part of, like, the broth part of it, um, you definitely want to add those as soon as you can. Uh, typically, like in a chili, when we're making that, um, we add that actually, you know, right when the meat is cooking mm-hmm. up, all right, and it starts to like cook with the meat, and then that flavor stays throughout the entire product, and it's wonderful that way. Um, now, if you want to, if you want that just to be a little bit more pronounced, like on a sip, right, you know, fresh parsley or herbs right at the end would really open that up, and you can taste that right away. Um, so it's, you know, that's where a nice garnish comes in, right. Um, Fresh versus dried, um, yeah, there, there's definitely a difference, um, but I, I would use both. You know, we use both. Mm-hmm. Um, it just really kind of depends on uh, if you want it to be really loud or if, if subtle is what you're kind of going for, right? So, you know, you got to pick and choose what, you, what your interests are and, and that soup that you're creating there.
0: Thanks again for that call. We're talking to Steve Wenhart, founder and CEO of Wisconsin Soup Company. He's with us on Food Friday to share advice on making great soup at home. And you can join in at 800-642-1234. How do you soup? Do you follow a recipe or follow your heart or just see what's in the fridge? What do you think makes for a great soup? Do you have questions about how to make a soup better? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. We'll pick up the conversation coming up on Central Time. This is Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We're picking up our Food Friday Talk About Soup with Stephen Wenhart from Wisconsin Soup Company. You can join in with your questions or your own advice at 800-642-1234. Back to your calls now. Tom is with us in McQuanago. Tom, Hi.
2: Hi. Good afternoon. Uh, it's amazing that you guys put on the show at this time. I'm cooking soup right now, <laughs> and what I'm uh, cooking is a potato leek soup from Julia Child's second volume of the Master of uh, you know uh, Mastering French Cooking. And what's great about the soup is you can add a bunch of things to it
0: to to change the flavors one way or the other. And I love it just the way it is, to tell you the truth. And I was wondering if your guest would have a suggestion off of this. Tom, thanks for the call. Any thoughts on potato leek soup? Uh, You
1: know, whenever I take a traditional recipe that I hear about and I kind of go down this road, I'm like, okay, it's great. I'm happy that it's out there. People love it how can we change it? Like, how can we make it a little bit more interesting? So, you know, my thing would be roasting the leeks, right, or something along these lines, or adding that to the base of it or puree it in there, add some more flavor, more depth to it. So it's kind of like taking the traditional but then adding something else to it. So um, that and, you know... I'm not sure. Sometimes uh, some recipes call for, you know, the certain type of potato. Maybe it might be just russet or something like this. But, you know, we, I really love using our Wisconsin gold potato here. It's buttery. It's just, it's really, it, you know, blends really well. Um, it really makes a really nice uh, soup.
0: Thanks a lot for that call, Tom. And mentioning blending, you know, sometimes I sometimes I go into a soup knowing it's going to be a broth with stuff in it or I'm going to blend it. Sometimes it's a last minute call if I'm going to partially blend it. Uh, what what makes that decision for you, whether it's going to be blended, blended a little or straight up?
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, you know, um there's there's no right or wrong when it comes to soup (laughs) right i mean um you you sort of kind of just start and see how it turns out and the next time you're like well you know i could use a little bit more of this um so you know we we you know with a lot of our recipes we really try to thicken our soups with raw ingredients um so that and being known like for instance like our our farmland split pea that we make um it's actually orange a lot of people's split peas are green and everyone always wonders why is ours orange and we actually thicken it with a carrot and carrot brings out that orange color. Mm-hmm. It also brings in a, a touch of sweetness as well, which I was looking for. So it offsets that that chicken stock flavor. So, Yeah, and it, and, it really, and people come back to it and they're so surprised. People that don't even like split pea soup are just like, I love that split pea soup because it still has the flavor of split peas, but again, it's been thickened with natural raw ingredients. I love that.
0: Let's go back to our callers now. Glenn is with us in Wapan. Glenn, hi.
1: Hi. I'm
0: a
2: big rotisserie chicken guy, but what I do is Rather than boil noodles, I go and take, uh, I'll go to a quick trip and I'll get uh, mac and cheese. I put the mac and cheese in there. I like uh, Ben's rice in the packages, heat it up for 90 seconds, put a couple of those in there. And maybe a day later, if I'm getting a little short, if I've got some leftover spaghetti and meatballs <laughs> or if i got some meatloaf, Goes in the soup.
0: Wow. Now, on the mac and cheese, are you just using the noodles, or does the cheese uh, powder, or depending oh, on the, the brand, cheese. the glop goes into?
2: No, this is this is a frozen. It's It's got the regular cheese in it. Okay. comes in a little uh, container with cellophane over it. You normally put it in, uh, poke holes, and... Put it in the microwave for two or three minutes. Gotcha. And I put that in there, and then I get a little cheesy flavor.
0: Nice. Okay, (laughs) cheesy, noodly, ricey, eventually meatloafy soup. (laughs) Soup can keep
1: changing, I guess, Steve. It does evolve. Yeah. Uh, You know that that does kind of sound me like a hamburger helper almost. There, Mm -hmm. that sounds delicious. Um, Yeah, but yeah, I mean that's right. You could you could do that with meat. um, you know, stretching stuff, I think that's kind of the idea of soup anyways, right? It's to take something and make it last for a little bit longer and yeah. throwing those other ingredients in there is interesting. Oh,
0: imagining right. mentioning noodles and soups reminds me, uh, a kind of a running joke in my house is sometimes my soups turn into stews along the way, especially if noodles are involved. How do you yeah. cook with noodles? So that they don't just keep absorbing every bit of liquid, and you're eating it your soup with a fork.
1: Yeah, and the, here's the here's and rice is another example. You cook it separately, right? You, mm-hmm. you you let it absorb all the moisture on its own prior to putting it into the soup, right? And that's you have to do it this way, right? Because uh, once you add it to the soup, it's going to do exactly what you're saying, mm-hmm. and it's going to start taking all that moisture, right? Um, the good thing is, is that once all the starches are released and the, the rice is cooked or or the noodle is cooked, um, it'll, it'll hold its own. And then it will also help thicken the soup up as well. So that's another technique as well.
0: It's Food Friday. We're getting great soup advice with Steve Wenhardt from Wisconsin Soup Company. Back to your calls. Erica is with us in Campbellsport. Erica, hi.
2: Hi. um, I enjoyed seeing you at the West Bend Farmer's Market soup. Thank you. And I was wondering, how do you reheat soup the next day? Like, if you make a nice soup, every time I make soup and go to reheat it, it's basically a stew. And I don't know what to do to make it not be
1: that way. That is a great question. Um, so here's the thing. When you make a soup, uh, it's, it's really important that you cool the soup down immediately. So why we do that that way at Wisconsin Soup Company is because once it's cooling down, it's, it, it's going to lose all of its steam and no moisture is going to be uh, dissipating from it, right? So you're going to lock it all in. So we cool our soups down really, really quickly. And a lot of people at home... Tend to just leave it on the stove and forget about (laughs) it for a half an hour or 45 (laughs) minutes, and it never gets all that evaporation is happening. So Mm -hmm. you have to kind of reconstitute that a little bit, right? Um, So the the double boiler method is probably the best way. So you're not scorching the bottom of the pan when you're warming up soup again. Um, That can be a little bit more of a technical challenge sometimes, Um, but that's the best way to do it if if you were to ask me.
0: Thanks a lot for the call. Erica, Shanda is with us in Green Bay. Shanda, hi.
2: Hi. Um, I have a little bit to add to the conversation, no pun intended. Um, When I make soups, I love to add a pinch of what I would call warm mulling spices sometimes. So some of my soups will get cloves, some will get nutmeg, some will get star anise. Um, It all depends on what I'm making. Um, My pea soup has just a pinch of cloves, and it adds this super warm, delicious very huge depth of flavor, all my cream soups get a pinch of nutmeg. And I think just adding those very interesting full flavored spices does a lot for a soup.
0: I've had a lot of, I think, chicken noodle soups with uh, cloves, or chicken matzah soups with cloves in them. So she's uh, she's uh, not on a weird
1: track there, Steve. Not at all. No, I, they're underused, um, but they're underused because they're so powerful as well. well so you have to be careful, right? Uh, you want to they have can that take want, over. Yeah, they really can. Yeah, <laughs> and that happens so often. So it's like, that's where you have to find that really nice uh, balance. Sometimes rosemary can do that too. It's like you know, it can steal the show, right? <laughs> yes. And you want to keep that in control a little bit.
0: Yeah, I, I've made that mistake. Shanda, thanks a lot for the call. Linda joins us now in Milwaukee. Linda.
2: Hi. Hi. I'm, you know, I'm back to the old traditional chicken noodle soup. What does your guest say is his best recipe for chicken noodle soup?
0: (laughs) I don't know if you have time for a whole recipe, Steve, but a a secret for a great chicken noodle soup, at least, or your favorite tip.
1: Yeah. um, So, you know, obviously, so when when we make chicken noodle soup, at home, it's the best part is you roast the whole chicken. Mm -hmm. Now, what you're going to end up doing is you're taking off all the the good meats that you want to have. The dark meats are great because they're very flavorful. The breast meat can be a touch dry sometimes if it's overcooked. Sometimes they cook at different temperatures. So taking out the meat you want, but then do the hard work. Make a stock out of it, right? Get those onions going. Get that garlic going. Put some of that all in there, some of that celery in there and the carrots. Mm Um, really make a really flavorful broth. Um, that way, the meat and the noodles and you know the little bit of parsley you throw on the end there aren't. They're all coming together, right? They're all they're all working together.
0: Thanks a lot for the call, Linda. And our, just our last few moments, Steve. Is there a cutting edge soup that you're experiment, experimenting with right
1: now? I think I gave a little bit too much away early when I said <laughs> the buffalo chicken. Oh, <laughs> well, that's right. Um, but that's one of them. We also have this uh, this really cool. Um, it's, it's, we, we're calling it right now uh, spicy chorizo loco, uh, which is like uh, glorified mm, taco soup with chorizo. Uh-huh. And it's, it's really fun. Well, that it's, sounds it's, fantastic. It's got a lot of flavor to it. A couple it. spicy soups down. Yeah. down. Yeah. All right. Change it up a little bit.
0: Steven, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been a lot of fun. I appreciate it, Rob. Thank you. That's Steve Wenhart, founder and CEO of Wisconsin Soup Company. Sorry, Steve Soup. Wenhart, he joined us for Food Friday to talk about the wide and wonderful world of soup making. You can keep sharing your favorites, by the way, over at the Ideas Network Facebook page or email ideas at WPR.org. Coming up Monday on The Morning Show with Kate Archer-Kent, check out the latest research on psychedelic substances and their possible applications for mental health care. If you have an experience to share, you can email ideas at WPR.org. Then join the conversation Monday morning at 8. A long-running classic rock mystery has been solved, and it goes back to the 19th century. As reported by the BBC, Led Zeppelin's album, Led Zeppelin 4, that's the one with Stairway to Heaven on it, has a picture on the cover of a man carrying this big bundle of sticks and twigs. The mystery, who was that guy? The image was found on a picture at a resale shop. Some people thought it was a photo taken of a painting, but hold on. A researcher in England was looking through old photos for an unrelated project, and found the original image—a black and white photograph. He was a Led Zeppelin fan. He recognized the guy right away. After some research, he found that the image is from around 1890 in Wiltshire, and happens to be a, a a Thatcher, somebody who collected thatch, named Lot Long. The photo is going to be part of an exhibit at the Wiltshire Museum next year. No word on whether there's going to be a soundtrack for that exhibit. This is Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Barrett. We're taking a look at some of the results from Election Day in some states earlier this week and what they could tell us about the upcoming presidential election in 2024. We'll talk about how Democrats performed in some key states, why abortion remains a crucial issue, and why Republicans are worried about some of those results. But there have also been some recent presidential polls, especially in swing states, that have Democrats worried. We're looking at the road ahead to election 2024, and you can join in at 800-642-1234. Were you watching elections in a handful of states on Tuesday? What are your thoughts on the support for abortion rights policies, even in some red states? Have you been watching polls? What are you looking for in this next year until the presidential election? Join in at 800 642 1234. That's 800 642 1234. Or email ideas at WPR.org. Lily Gorin is a professor of political science at Carroll University in Waukesha. Lily, welcome back to Central Time.
3: Hey, thanks for having me on today, Rob.
0: Let's start with this week's election results. Now, these are off year elections. It's a whole year till the presidential election. It's easy to overread anything that happens in elections like this. That said, uh, between uh, Democrats doing well in the Virginia legislature, a Democrat holding on to the Kentucky governor's office, the Ohio abortion uh, outcome, seems like a lot of good news for Democrats in those elections.
3: Uh, yeah, I mean, they were they were sort of local, definitely state-centric races um, in, in all the ones that you mentioned in terms of the Virginia legislature, both the Um, House of Delegates and the state Senate, um, the Kentucky governor's office. Uh, Democrats did not win the uh, governor's office in Mississippi. Um, They were not expected to, but there was a lot of sort of paying attention to whether or not that was one that, that would potentially go in the Democrats' favor. And of course, the constitutional amendments in Ohio Um, The top line one was with regard to enshrining access to abortion in the Ohio Constitution and also the legalization of recreational marijuana.
0: Let's talk about abortion as an issue. A lot of people have been pointing toward a a string of elections where Democrats performed uh, better than expected since the overturning of Roe v. Wade in the Dobbs decision. What are you looking at there?
3: well i mean i think what you have seen is if abortion is actually on the ballot and it has been in a number of states where voters are voting not just for an individual but actually for some sort of referendum or amendment that um abortion has access to abortion has won um and i think it's now seven for seven um in those cases but you do also have like the situation in virginia where Glenn Youngkin, who's a Republican um, governor, uh, was running um, a sort of statewide campaign to get uh, Republicans elected to the to the state houses there. To enshrine a 15-week ban, uh, no abortion access after 15 weeks, except in cases of rape and incest, incest, and the and the life of the mother. Um, but this was rejected by voters um, in terms of who they voted for to remain in the the House of Delegates and the State Senate.
0: All right. So that's what Democrats are looking at and seeing as good news. Republicans, though, I think are celebrating and Democrats worried about uh, a string of recent polls showing uh, President Biden uh, in difficult situations in battleground states in theoretical head to heads against uh, former President Trump and sometimes other Republican candidates. What is going on there? Why are we seeing the incumbent president, at least again, a year ahead of the election in state polls, uh, seemingly struggling?
3: and i was i was asked a fairly similar question by actually a bunch of um high school students in in the uk earlier this week i was zooming oh, cool. into their class Fun. um and and i said one of the things that you know sort of we as political scientists often look at are what the quote fundamentals are in terms of you know what people are thinking about the economy about the the country going in the right or the wrong direction um, and even though we have you know historically low unemployment at the moment inflation is still high and it's higher than it has been in quite some time and so people are not necessarily feeling like the economy is stabilized because they're paying a lot more when they go to the store and and president biden, for good or ill, depending on your perspective, is often getting blamed for, you know, some of this stuff. And then we have these, you know, two big conflagrations with regard to Ukraine and the Russian invasion there. And of course, the more recent one with regard to Hamas in Gaza attacking Israel and now Israel's um, moving into Gaza. And so we we see this kind of instability in other places in the world, and oftentimes Americans kind of respond. And obviously, we have been sending support, um, both monetarily and militarily, to these places. But we are very concerned in a lot of ways about, like, what does this mean? Does this mean that the world is less stable and we have to be more concerned about that, you know, essentially coming to our shores?
0: Talking to Lily Gorin, professor of political science at Carroll University in Waukesha, looking at the road to the 2024 election, the results in a few states around the country on Tuesday with good news for Democrats, polls with uh, good news for Republicans, at least in presidential head-to-head matchups in many battleground states. You can join in with your thoughts, your questions at 800-642-1234. Let's bring on a caller now. Willem is with us in Colfax. Willem, Hi.
2: Hi. I guess what I find troubling and uh, seriously troubling is that one of the major parties in this country, the Republican Party, the party of Honest Abe, as I was always told as a child, has become the party of lying Donald. He has been perpetrating this lie of a stolen election, and it activates people. I have people around. I've seen signs that people have. They believe him. They believe him, and that's why they came to January 6th. And the Republican Party somehow doesn't have the spine to stand up for the truth and what is right. And the rule of law requires evidence. That's what this country is built on. We're a country of laws and not men.
0: Willem, thanks a lot for the call. And, Lily, I've seen some actually critique of media coverage uh, treating this as a normal presidential race where we talk about uh, polls and off-year elections and issues and things like that. Versus concerns that Willem has in that uh, Donald Trump is a different type of candidate who tried to overturn the previous election results, has basically said he would use the power of the presidency to chase uh, his political opponents, including uh, former cabinet officials who stood up to him during his administration. Should we be talking about this in a different way than we would talk about a normal, whatever that is, presidential election?
3: Well, I mean, I do think that it is it is a different um, dynamic uh, with regard to Trump, and we just saw the election of the new speaker in the House of Representatives, who is was forefront in terms of the election denial issues. Um, and so, the the basis of a democracy is is pretty much everybody agrees on the rules. Um, it's not necessarily that you agree on the policies or the people who are in office, but you kind of agree that the, the system functions in a particular way, and that's the way you're gonna keep going with the system. Um, and, and the election denial and the lack of a sort of peaceful transfer of power, ultimately it was peaceful, but January 6th was not peaceful. Um, that, that is an aberration in our history, and it is very troubling with regard to sustaining democracy.
0: Thanks for that call, Willem, at 800-642-1234. to look at the new Marquette uh, University Law School survey, an interesting uh, finding there. Uh, President, Former President Trump leads the Republican primary field. No surprise there. He does uh, in most polls, I think, nationally or at state levels. In head-to-heads, though, uh, other candidates, other Republican candidates, do better against uh, incumbent Joe Biden, Than Trump himself does. Uh, Is it a case where uh, Trump could easily win a primary, but uh, make it harder for Republicans to win a general election?
3: I mean, I I think that's what a lot of these polls are indicating. And again, they they are showing that Biden has a variety of weaknesses, not the least of them his age, um, but that. Ultimately, if Nikki Haley were the the Republican nominee instead of Trump, it is likely that the Republicans would have uh, potentially a much easier time winning the White House. That's what the polls are saying to me, at least, particularly the the Mar- Marquette Law School poll, um, where she is she is ahead of both DeSantis and Trump in terms of winning the state of Wisconsin.
0: Lily Gorin is with us, professor of political science at Carroll University in Waukesha. She's talking with us about Tuesday's election results in some states around the country and recent polls. What it all may reveal or at least point to for 2024's election year. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Trump-Biden election. Do you like that notion? Would you like to see one different name, two different names in the Democratic and Republican uh, campaigns for president? Why? Why not? If you're a Republican, would you like to see someone other than Donald Trump be your standard bearer in this election? Same question if you're a Democrat for President Biden. Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email ideas at WPR.org. We'll pick up the conversation coming up here on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. We continue our talk with Carroll University political science professor Lily Gorin about some takeaways from Tuesday's election day early presidential polling and the road ahead to next year's election. You can join in at 800-642-1234. What are the most important things for you when you vote? What kind of issues do you want to see candidates focus on when you vote? What is most important to you in this upcoming presidential campaign? Upcoming, it's going on now. Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or Email ideas at WPR.org. Lily, I teased a few moments ago, you know, a likely Trump-Biden rematch. A lot of polls show. A lot of people aren't enthusiastic about it. I've seen like one in five saying uh, neither, <laughs> given that choice. But when it comes down to it, of course, a lot of people will vote for the candidate from their party or against the candidate from the other party. Uh, is there room for anything but Trump and Biden this time around?
3: Well, I mean, we we just had the third debate among um, challengers to Trump for the the GOP nomination this week on Wednesday night. Um, and so you, you still have five challengers who are on the debate stage, um, although they may get whittled down before the next debate. But most of them are 20, 35 points away from Trump. Um, so it's not necessarily clear you know, how they're going to move Trump from that position um, as the nominee. As for Biden, he also has been getting a couple more challengers. Um, I I just saw recently that Jill Stein has launched another presidential campaign for the Green Party nomination. Um, And so there are, are other folks in the field. Um, but in the case of Biden, most of them don't seem to be um, really much of a threat to an incumbent president. And it seems like Biden is going to, you know, continue to run. He seems like he's going to be the nominee for the Democrats. So it looks like Biden and Trump. (laughs) Let's
0: go back. Oh, sorry. It could
3: change. It could change. (laughs)
0: Let's go back to our callers at 800-642-1234. Mark is with us in Upper Michigan. Mark, hi. Hi, how's it going? Uh, Go ahead, Mark. I, I I believe Biden's policies are wrong. You know,
2: I'm, I'm I used to be a Democrat. I worked union all my life for thirty years. I'm retired, and uh, it seems like he's getting away from the working man's fight. You know, I mean. Mark,
0: I, I think I got gotcha. And Mark, I think, is is kind of he's not alone. He's kind of a nightmare for, for Democrats, uh, former union members, as Mark is, who perceive uh, rightly or wrongly that the Democratic Party, in this case, he says Biden in particular, aren't the party focusing on working people anymore. How big a factor is that, Lily?
3: I mean I think it is a factor um and I think that you know what you just saw also with the the UAW strike um with both Biden and Trump going to um going to talk to the well to union workers um or workers who are part of um the the industry and so forth is you know trying to woo those workers but at the same time a lot of the the folks who were sort of the the lunch pail Democrats, if you will, um, they many of them left the Democratic Party earlier. Um, So I'm not necessarily sure that there are a lot who are leaving right now. Um, And and one of the things I think that Biden has has tried to do um, and he may not be successful, but he has tried to sort of woo some of them back. Um, But the populism in the Republican Party is very strong. And that has also been attractive to a number of union workers as well.
0: Thanks for the call, Mark. I want to talk a little more about the the UAW strike, as you mentioned, just ended. We had Biden go and speak to union workers. Trump go and speak at a non-union shop. Biden uh, back there as some of these deals are being uh, made, uh, tentative deals now being voted on by union locals. Uh, Is... If union workers say, OK, yes, uh, Biden is per- paying more attention to union workers than Trump is, are there enough of them these days that it makes a big political difference anyway?
3: Um, I mean, uh, the the membership in unions has obviously declined rather dramatically over the last three decades or so. Um, but at the same time. If those union workers happen to be in Pennsylvania or Michigan or Wisconsin, Mm -hmm. which is where quite a few of them are, um, at least in terms of the UAW workers, that may be important for both um, Trump and Biden, uh, because obviously these are swing states. And if you you know, if you can pull some of those voters in your camp, that may help you over the finish line on Election Day.
0: Let's go back to our callers. Stu is with us now in Hillsborough. Stu, hello. Hello. Uh, Long-time listener, first-time
2: caller. Thanks for calling. I'd like to say uh, terribly sorry about the loss of civility in politics today. There's no room for name-calling. That should stop immediately, and that uh, there should be rules to debate, like a wall between the candidates, the moderator has to have a – kill the mic switch, and right now there should be a demand for written 20 questions, a strategy that would ensure the candidates know what they're talking about, because it is so silly to just have 20-second interruptions of each other.
0: Stu thanks a lot for the call. Lily you mentioned the most recent uh Republican debate. Uh they are very uh performative. I think it's fair to say do you think yep. do you worry uh, as Stu seems to that we're not getting any substance out of these things.
3: Well, I mean these debates and and the same to some degree the same thing with the presidential debates have you know they they you get a very short amount of time to answer a question um and so it's very hard to in a certain sense flesh out a lot of policy. Um but there was, you know, there were Again, lots of fireworks at the Wednesday debate, um, a lot of them coming from um, Vivek Ramaswamy. Um, And, you know, it's again how he has, as you say, performed in the past. Um, But I I don't necessarily know that the RNC or the DNC um, or the Presidential Debate Commission is going to try to change a lot of these things. And it's very unclear if Donald Trump is the nominee, if he will, in fact, do any debate.
0: Thanks for the call, Stu. Talking about the road to the 2024 elections with Lily Gorin from Carroll University. Back to your calls now. Susan is with us in Rhinelander. Susan, hi.
2: Hey, Rob. Thanks for taking the call and love Lily. Uh, I was saying that I, I consider myself a centrist, a moderate, whatever label you want to put on it. So therefore, I, you know, I support some conservative ideas as well as some liberal ideas. And I watched the GOP debate. I thought it was rather fascinating, although I wasn't glued every moment, but I don't think I heard any significant mention of climate change and or policy or clean energy. And I, I guess I, I sit back and I say, why wouldn't that, why wouldn't there be a question on that for, you know, us independents out here who who feel that this is a, a serious threat? And I, I think we can all agree on that uh, because of all the you know, the uh, research and attention that we hear about climate change. And I didn't hear a mention, I don't think, but you can correct me.
0: Susan, thanks for the call. I know there was a, a brief bit in, a, I can't remember if it was debate number one or number two, Lily, but by and large in Republican debates, not a whole lot of climate change uh, in head to head presidential debates over the last uh, few cycles. I don't think there's been a lot of talk about climate change.
3: No, not particularly among the Republicans because um there is a lot of skepticism about the the data that Sue mentioned um in the Republican um, el- the electorate or the elected uh, officials but you know there I think there I think you're right I think there was one question, um, maybe in the second debate um but there was and there was a little bit of discussion, I think of fracking at some point. Um, it's all a little bit of a fever dream, uh, <laughs> but I I'm not necessarily sure that, We've seen, you know, sort of big global questions about, like, how to solve this this really threatening problem.
0: Thanks again for that call. Lily, I want to bring things as we look to the future now uh, back to the issue of abortion. Now, we had Ohio voters, as you mentioned, approving this constitutional amendment, guaranteeing abortion uh, access uh, in most cases. 18 counties in Ohio that went for Trump in 2020 also voted to support abortion rights this week. Looking at a map, it looked like a lot of suburban counties. What do you expect to see from both parties to uh, harness or counter that issue uh, over the next year?
3: Well, I mean, I think that the the Youngkin effort in Virginia was an attempt to see if a 15-week ban would be something that was acceptable to voters. And if that was the case, then that would essentially be more or less the, the sort of template going forward. But that didn't seem to work in Virginia. Um, and so I have a feeling that the Republicans are still sort of regrouping in terms of how to um, run Against what has happened since the Dobbs decision, um, and Democrats are trying to capitalize on this as a, as a you know sort of plank and platform that they see as helping them be successful in elections.
0: Lily, we'll we will leave it there. Thanks again for joining us today.
3: Thanks for having me on again.
0: That's Lily Gorin, professor of political science at Carroll University. She talked to us about what this week's election results and the latest polls might tell us about the 2024 election campaign. Coming up Monday here on Central Time, a big new Martin Scorsese movie is bringing new attention to the portrayal of Native Americans in movies and on TV. A Native American filmmaker joins the show for a look at how things have changed or stayed the same over the years. And online forums and games and social media have been overwhelmed, in some cases, by toxic behavior. But there are some new strategies in the works to try to build better online environments. An expert in online behavior and communication digs into some of those latest efforts. Love to hear from you. You can get the conversation started right now. Email ideas at WPR.org. Is there an online community that drove you off with all the badness or one that you think works really well Tell us how, what it is, and why. Then join the conversations. It's all coming up Monday here on Central Time. Coming up after the news, a lot of us have turned to group chats and texting as the primary way to communicate directly with our social circles. A UW-Madison expert joins us to explore the social dynamics of our texts with friends, family, and beyond. I'm Rob Ferrett. This is Central Time here on the Ideas Network.